Father, as we have already asked a number of times this afternoon, we, we do ask that as we come and we, we meditate and we study on your word, that you would nourish us by your word, Father, that you would feed our souls. And Father, we pray that your word would be a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. And Father, we pray that we would behold wondrous things from your word. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since uh, moving here to Fajera just a little bit less than a, a year ago, I have come to learn from some of you that having uninvited or unexpected visitors show up at your home is, is not very unusual. In the place that you're from or in the cultures that you are from, this is actually fairly normal. Uh, the impression that I, I've gotten in talking to you, it may not be entirely correct, but the impression I've gotten is that somebody, if someone shows up at the door unexpectedly, you'd invite them in, you'd probably give them some tea or some coffee, maybe a snack, you would uh, stop whatever you were doing, and you'd spend some time talking with them, you would give them a good portion of your time. It would be considered very rude to do anything differently. Now this is much different than what I am used to from my time and growing up in the United States. But even in the U.S., where it is very much not the culture for someone to show up on your doorstep uninvited and unexpected, it would be considered very rude to simply shut the door in the face of that uninvited guest. We all understand that, that showing hospitality to another is a way of showing love and, and kindness to another. We do not always do it well. And, and even if you're from a, a culture where unexpected visitors might be a little bit more normal than the culture I am from, my guess is there are times that you are less welcoming than others. There are times when that doorbell rings that you wish those people were not there. But my guess is that even in those times, you try to be welcoming because you know to do anything else would be very offensive. It would be rude. Hospitality is important. Whether we, we want it to or not, and sometimes whether we even mean it to or not, whether we intend it, how we welcome others, our attitude, how we show hospitality to others, the time we give them, communicates how much we care for them, communicates whether we, we value them, whether they're important to us, whether that relationship matters. Go ahead and turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. We're going to be in Luke 9, 1 through 17 today. And this idea of hospitality or welcoming others uh, really frames or shapes these verses. Uh, we're going to see Jesus send his disciples out into a world in which many will not welcome them. Many will not show them hospitality. On the other hand, we will see a, a large crowd unexpectedly come to Jesus and his disciples when they are tired and they want rest, that they are trying to escape and get away. And though this crowd comes to Jesus with nothing, not even enough food to feed themselves, Jesus welcomes them and he provides for them. So the main idea of this text this afternoon is that Jesus is a welcoming savior who nourishes and, and satisfies all who come to him in repentance and faith. So I have three points for you to consider from the text this afternoon. Three points. The first is a test of welcome. The second is a question of welcome. And the third is a savior of welcome. A test of welcome, a question of welcome, and a savior of welcome. 
So first, a test of welcome. Look with me, starting in verse 1 of chapter 9. Summoning the twelve, he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Then he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Take nothing for the road, he told them. No staff, no traveling bag, no bread, no money, and don't take an extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. If they do not welcome you when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and traveled from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing everywhere. Herod the Tetrarch heard about everything that was going on. He was perplexed. Oh, sorry, I was going to stop at verse 6. We'll come back to that verse. I was getting excited and moving ahead. Uh, Well, from these first six verses, we see that this, uh, well, really from the context of Luke, we see that this idea of welcoming or rejecting Jesus has been very much present. If you remember back a couple of weeks ago after Jesus cast out a legion of demons from a man, the people of the nearby town did anything but welcome Jesus. They asked him to leave. Uh, The very next week, in the very next place, Jesus traveled out out of that. What uh, Brother Ben or Pastor Ben preached from us a couple of weeks ago is that the the people welcome him. One group welcomes Jesus and responds rightly to Jesus. The other group wants him to leave, and they do not show hospitality to Jesus. They do not want him to stay with them. Sometime after these events... We see in verse 1 that Jesus gathers the 12 disciples together and he gives them power and authority over demons and over sickness and sends them out to preach the gospel and to heal the sick. In other words, Jesus really just commissions his disciples or sends them on a a mission that is going to be multiplying his own mission. He sends them out to do the very same things that he himself has been doing through his time on earth. He sends them out under his authority. It was by his authority that they would proclaim the kingdom of God. It was by his authority that they would cast out demons and heal. And this mission that Jesus sends the twelve disciples out on was really a precursor to or preparation for the mission that he would later send them out on following his death and resurrection. Just remember the words of the Great Commission from Matthew 28. Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, also written by Luke, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But later, Jesus will send out his disciples and his authority to proclaim the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. This commission was was not just one for the twelve disciples. This great commission, what we see in Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 1, a Christian, it is your commission as well. Like an ambassador is sent out under the authority of the, the nation that they represent or under the authority of the ruler of that nation. As Christians, you are sent out as a representative of King Jesus into the world. You are, you are members of Christ's church and you are commissioned to preach the gospel 
and you're commissioned to make disciples of all nations. I know it can be scary or intimidating sometimes to share the gospel with, with others. It is something that I think we all struggle with. But it is part of your job description as a Christian. It can sometimes feel hopeless. But remember, you go not in your power or your own strength or your own authority. You go in the power and authority of the one who has power and authority over demons. The one who was raised from the dead and who raises the dead. The authority of the one who commands the wind and the waves and the authority of the one who forgives sins. And Christian, when you go out and you share the good news of the gospel, you don't go sharing your own words, but you go sharing the powerful words of Jesus Christ. You go sharing the gospel. As we've seen throughout Luke, it is his words that breathe new life into dying sinners. As Christians, you've been given the authoritative word of God and sent out in a lost and dying world to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That mission that we see the 12 disciples get in this text is the exact same mission that we have today. So Jesus gives them authority. He sends them out to, to preach the good news of the gospel. Uh, he also gave them the authority to, to heal. Now, this isn't the, the main point of the passage, but I think a good time to stop and just say that personally, I do not think that this is an authority or a gift, a spiritual gift that is given to individual Christians today. Though this is an issue certainly on which faithful Christians can disagree. Now, does God still miraculously heal people today? The answer is absolutely yes. Should we be praying for the healing of people today? The answer is absolutely yes. And might God give the gift of healing to Christians today, at least for a, a period of time? I think that's possible. Uh, personally, I think that's possible, and certainly in places where the gospel has never been preached or the church has not been established, or maybe particularly in those places. But as Peter preached in Acts 2.22, the main reason for Jesus' miracles was to be a testament or a test or, or give witness to who he was. In a, in a similar way, the miracles that the apostles and others performed as the early church was being established, as it was being built up, and as it was spreading, was to give testimony to the truth of the message they proclaimed. Now that the, the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, now that God's word is so widespread, I think at the very least, these miraculous gifts of the Spirit to include healing are, are at least less active. Again, that's not to say that God does not miraculously heal people today. He certainly does. It's not to say that this gift of healing could not be given. I don't, I don't think that. But I do not think that it is one that is normally, it's a normative thing for Christians to receive today. Well, Jesus sins with authority. But that is about the only thing that he sent the disciples out with in this text. He sends them under his authority. And he sends them out to preach and perform miracles. But he tells them to take nothing with them. No food, no money. They're not even to take extra, extra clothes with them. I mean, if I go spend the night at somebody's house, I take an extra shirt with me. Instead, they're going to be going out for days and weeks, and they're not even to take an extra shirt with them. Instead, they're to rely on the hospitality of others, and they're to rely on God's sovereign care as they go out. They were to, to trust that God would provide through the generosity of others. 
Now, what I don't think this means is I don't think this means that for churches today that, that we should be sending out missionaries or sending out those who are going to preach the gospel with, with nothing, no food or clothes. Say, you know, good luck. We, we see what happened here to the, the 12 disciples. I don't think that is the pattern that we see in the New Testament. We see instead churches and Christians providing for those who take the gospel to new places. As we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus himself was provided for by by some of his wealthier followers. It's what enabled his own ministry during his time on earth. But I think Jesus sends his disciples out this way for a couple of specific reasons. Uh, One, I think it's to build their own faith in God, right? Who is providing for them? They were to trust in God's provision. He was going to use others, but they were going to be building and growing their faith and learning to trust as the Lord provided. But it was also a test to those to whom the disciples were sent. It was testing these towns and these peoples to whom they were sent. Would these disciples be welcomed? Would they be shown hospitality? Would they be provided for? Or would they be sent away? And it's this this second reason that I think is really at the heart of the text. It was was clear from Jesus' message to the disciples in these first six verses that the disciples were going to face at least some rejection. It was clear that they would not be welcomed everywhere that they went. Now, like, like many of your cultures, as, we, as I said in that opening illustration, hospitality towards guests and even strangers was a, a very important part of Jewish culture. I mean, we see either in, even in other parts of the Bible, a Jewish travelers showing up to like city squares and seem to be expecting someone is probably going to like take them into their house or provide a meal. Uh, I don't know what would happen in your places, but if I showed up in the middle of a city in the United States, nobody is going to be taking me in. But it was a very important part of of Jewish culture. To refuse to show hospitality to a traveler and a stranger would have been rude. And in the disciples' case, as they're going out, this lack of hospitality would have even been a greater offense because the disciples came healing the sick and they became, became proclaiming the good news of the gospel. They didn't have any material possessions with them. They didn't have extra clothes. They didn't have money. They didn't have food. But they did not come empty-handed into these towns they were traveling to. They served the communities they were visiting. They were healing people. They were bringing the life-giving news of the gospel to those in need. And so the the point that, that Jesus is making by sending them out with nothing, the point Luke is making by putting this in his gospel is to show that whether or not the disciples were welcomed was a sign of whether the people in those towns welcomed the message of the kingdom of God. Which is just another way of saying it was a sign of whether they were welcoming of Jesus himself. Were they accepting of Jesus? Were they going to reject Jesus? This is why the disciples are told to shake the dust off their feet as a testimony against the towns where they are not welcomed. As one uh, commentator on these verses says it, this symbolic act, the symbolic act of, of shaking the dust off their feet, severs all relationship with the town, leaving it in a state of condemnation to await the final judgment. I don't know if you've heard the expression that I'm going to wash my hands of this problem. Or I'm going to wash my hands of this person. No longer my responsibility. I'm out of it. That's basically what this is saying. I'm going to shake the dust off my feet. I came, I preached the gospel. You've rejected it. Not my problem anymore. 
In Luke 10, Jesus sends out even more of his followers, and he again instructs them to wipe the dust off their feet towards the towns that do not welcome them. And then Jesus says this in Luke 10, 12. I tell you, on that day it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. In other words, unless the people of that town suddenly turned in repentance and faith and went from rejecting Jesus and the message that these disciples brought, the message of the gospel, unless they repented and turned and welcomed Jesus, they would face eternal condemnation to hell for rejecting Jesus, for rejecting the good news of the gospel. And that is what Jesus is saying here. That is the instruction that he is giving And friends, what was true of those towns is still true today. If you're here and and you're not a Christian, we're we're glad to have you with us. We we welcome you to this service. We we want to welcome you to any and all of our services. But you should know that we do not just preach and teach the Bible week after week because we think the Bible is interesting. Though it is interesting. We do think it is interesting, but that's not the reason. It's not because we think it can help you find some ways to improve your day-to-day life, though we also think that is true. We preach it because it contains the words of life and death. And while we're happy to have you come week after week and and listen to the, the message of the Bible over and over and over again, we think that is a wonderful thing. Now, ultimately, I want you to know that you must do something with that message. You have to either welcome it or, or reject it. And staying undecided or staying on the fence is, is not an option. To never choose to accept the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the same thing as rejecting it outright. Jesus brought the words of eternal life, and his church continues to proclaim those words today. That's why we're up here preaching the Bible week after week. It's because we have the authoritative word of God that has the, messages, that has the message of life. The question is, will you listen? Will you listen? And brothers and sisters, to those of you who are Christians, you should know that when you share the gospel and it is rejected, and that is certainly going to happen in this life, it's not because that person is ultimately rejecting you. It's because they're rejecting Jesus. Like the disciples, you should expect at least some measure of rejection to the gospel message. We pray that people will hear it, We pray that they will listen to it. But the the success of the disciples' mission here was not measured on the number of people who accepted their message. It was measured on their faithfulness to proclaim that message. We see in in verse 6, Jesus tells them they will face rejection, but they simply are to go out and carry on the mission anyway. Shake the dust off their feet, head to the next town. The measure of a, a faithful and a healthy ministry The measure of a faithful and a healthy church is is not the size of the church. It's not even the number of people baptized. It's in its commitment to faithfully and accurately share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is God who chooses whether or not to give the growth. We as, as Christians are called to plant and water, but we trust that God gives the growth. The job of the Christian is to proclaim It's God's job to convert sinners. Now that takes us to verses 7 through 9 and the the second point of the sermon. The one I was so excited to get to, the question of of welcome. 
Uh, So please look with me at verses 7 through 9. Herod the Tetrarch heard about everything that was going on. He was perplexed because some said that John had been raised from the dead, some that Elijah had appeared, and others that one of the ancient prophets had risen. I beheaded John, Herod said, but who is this I hear such things about? And he wanted to see him. So Herod was the ruler of Galilee at this time. This is the the area, the region in which Jesus is ministering at at this point in Luke's gospel. And he seems to have heard about everything that was going on. It, It could be that he had heard about this mission of the disciples and them out preaching and healing. I think it's more likely that Luke means that he had heard all that Jesus had been doing. In, in verse 9, he asked the question that has been really at the center of Luke, especially for the last few weeks. Who is Jesus? Herod asked, who is this I hear such things about? In other words, I'm hearing a lot about Jesus. Who is this guy? Herod could, could not make a lot of sense out of what he was hearing. Uh, by this point in time, uh, Herod had already arrested John the Baptist, and by this time he had already beheaded John the Baptist. He had martyred John the Baptist. But some were saying these reports that Herod had heard said that John the Baptist had come back to life. Or, or maybe they, they meant that somehow John's spirit had left his body at death and somehow inhabited Jesus. Uh, so Herod is probably a little scared about this. He doesn't know what's going on. Uh, he hears other reports that Elijah had appeared, or at least someone like Elijah. There were Old Testament prophecy from Malachi that one that Ma- that Elijah uh, would appear before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So some thought this is who Jesus was. Still others said Jesus was like one of the Old Testament prophets, or maybe literally one of the Old Testament prophets that come back to life. So Herod had heard a number of different things, but you can notice one thing that he had not heard. It seems as if no one had reported to him the possibility that Jesus was the Messiah. These theories of who Jesus was that Herod had heard all felt far short of who Jesus actually is. Uh, We're going to look at these verses next week, but I think it's significant in the verses that just follow the passage we're looking at this week, starting in Luke 9, 18. Uh, that Jesus turns to ask his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And they give the same exact answer that Herod gave, of what Herod had heard in these verses. But then Jesus turns and he asks his disciples specifically, well, who do you say that I am? The crowds say this, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, replying on behalf of the disciples, gives the correct answer. He said, you are God's Messiah. Friends, all this to say, and, and this, this section on Herod, I think, is, is put here in, in the middle of, this, of chapter 9, because you need to know that in order to welcome Jesus and, and believe in Jesus, that you must answer that question correctly. Who is Jesus? Who is this man that you have heard such things about? Jesus is God's Messiah. We could certainly go on and give a more robust description than that. But Jesus is the Son of God, God himself, the one who came as the Savior of the world. And he is a welcoming Savior to all who come to him in humble repentance and faith. That brings us to that, the third and final point of the sermon. 
that Jesus is a, a Savior who welcomes. Look with me at verses 10 through 17. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus all that they had done. He took them along and withdrew privately to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds found out, they followed him. He welcomed them, spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who needed, who needed healing. Late in the day, the twelve approached and said to him, Send the crowd away so that they can go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find food and lodging, because we are in a deserted place here. You give them something to eat, he told them. We have no more than five loaves and two fish, they said, unless we go and buy food for all these people. For about 5,000 men were there. Then he told his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. They did what he said and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them. He kept giving them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Everyone ate and was filled. They picked up twelve baskets of leftover pieces. So the disciples finally return from this mission that they were sent on. They report what has happened to Jesus. Uh, Luke does not tell us exactly how long they were gone. It seems reasonable to conclude that they were gone for some number of weeks, uh, certainly in an extended period of days. Uh, and in Mark's gospel, when he records this, this same time period in their ministry, he says the disciples were tired and they needed rest. That's the reason that they withdrew to Bethsaida. Jesus was looking to give his disciples rest after they had come back. Jesus was probably looking for a little rest himself, sometime alone with his disciples. But as we see, their rest was short-lived. The crowds find out where Jesus was and his disciples, and they go to them. And they crowd around them. To go back to the opening illustration of the sermon, these crowds are like that unexpected guest showing up to your house. Jesus and his disciples want some peace and quiet. They're ready for an afternoon nap. And then the doorbell rings. And there is not just a family of unexpected visitors on the doorstep. There is a crowd of over 5,000 people. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. They are tired after a long period of ministry. They want to rest. They went away specifically to rest. And what would your reaction be or... What would your attitude be in a similar situation? If it were me, I'm pretty sure I know what my attitude would be. I would find a new place to hide. I would tell the crowds to, to go away. And I would try to find the rest that I wanted. That's not what Jesus does. He has compassion on the crowd. He welcomes the crowd. He does not just tolerate his, his presence and have them come in and sit on the couch for a few minutes while he glances at his watch to see when they will leave. No, it seems that Jesus spends the whole day with them, along with his disciples, teaching the crowds that have gathered, healing the crowds that have gathered, and giving them all that they needed. This gives such a clear picture of, of Jesus' compassion in, in these verses, of Jesus' love for the people to whom he was, he was sent. And Jesus is a warm and welcoming Savior. As the day is, is getting late, as, as they've spent all day ministering to these crowds, the disciples start growing concerned for the crowd that they may be given enough time to go find something to eat and find a place to spend the night. And so on one hand, I think we should praise the disciples. They seem to be, in some sense, at least mirroring Jesus' care for the crowds, right? They want the crowds to have a place to sleep. 
They want them to have something to eat. But on the other hand, they forget that they are in the presence of Jesus, the one who just a, a few verses ago had calmed the wind and the waves. Jesus who had raised the little girl to life. Jesus who had just finished sending them out with the power and authority to cast out demons and to heal. And who had just spent the entire day healing the crowds that had come to him. And so the, the disciples, though Peter is going to confess the right answer to who Jesus is in just a few verses, we see they are still coming to grips with who Jesus was and what that meant. They still forgot that the present, they still forgot the presence of the Lord of all of creation was in their midst. But Jesus has compassion on the disciples too. He teaches them. He tells the disciples to give the crowd something to eat. We learn in the other Gospels that Jesus says this to the disciples because he is testing them. And he knows that there's not enough physical food there to feed them. He knows the disciples do not have the capability in and of themselves to feed this crowd, but he is testing their faith. Now what the disciples should have said is something like, oh, we're unable to give these crowds something to eat, but you can do all things, Lord. You are capable of doing all things. That is not what they said, and I doubt it is what either you or I would have said in a similar situation. Just ask yourself how many times you've forgotten the Lord's faithfulness in your own life, how many times you've forgotten the Lord's power at work in your life. And so that's not what the disciples say. Instead, they just consider the practical reality. They only considered the problem and forgot that God can do all things. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all these people. Well, in response, Jesus tells the disciples to have this huge crowd of, of more than 5,000 people sit down in groups of 50. And he took the very meager supplies that were on hand, and five loaves and, and two fish, prayed and divided them and kept distributing to the crowd. And Luke summarized what happens in verse 17. Everyone ate and was filled. They picked up 12 baskets of leftover pieces. Five loaves and two fish by themselves are not enough to fill 12 baskets, much less feed 5,000 people. But Jesus miraculously turns these meager supplies into an abundant feast. Luke provides all these details to, to show just how abundantly Jesus provided for the people who were there. He did not just provide what they needed. He provided abundantly far more than they needed. Twelve baskets full of leftovers were collected. And I think we're supposed to notice that in many ways what happens with Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 is a reversal of what happened when Jesus sent his disciples out on their mission. Jesus sent his disciples out with nothing. Here the crowds come to Jesus with nothing, not even enough to eat. I mean, among 5,000 people, all they can come up with is two fish and five loaves of bread. And I think my kids go through more than that in snacks every church service. And when Jesus sends his disciples out, they were to rely on others to provide for them. Here, the crowds are reliant on Jesus to provide for them. And he abundantly provides. The disciples were sent out with nothing in order that their faith in God and his abundant provision might be strengthened. Here, Jesus again strengthens the faith of the disciples by showing them that he could meet any need. 
When the disciples were sent out, some would accept them, but many would reject them. But here we see this crowd of 5,000 comes to Jesus when he and his disciples are exhausted. They are all welcomed, warmly welcomed, compassionately welcomed by Jesus. So it's a study in contrasts. And it demonstrates that Jesus is a welcoming Savior. It demonstrates that Jesus is the, the one who provides. But there's more to the story than Jesus just meeting the physical needs of the people that were there. Jesus was not simply just healing physical ailments. He was not just simply filling empty bellies. He was not even just building the faith of his disciples. Jesus was pointing to himself as the one who fully satisfies. He was teaching people that it is not food that they needed. They didn't need five loaves and two fish. They didn't need this, this meal. They needed him. And friends, Jesus is, is teaching you the same thing through his word today. What you need is not food. It's not a better job. It's not improved relationships. It's not a husband or a wife. It's not more rest. It's not better health. These are, are fine and, and good things, even things to pray for and, and ask the Lord for. But what you need is Jesus himself. Jesus is, is the only one who fully satisfies. This, this same miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is recorded in John chapter 6. You can go ahead and turn there with me, actually, if you just turn a few pages to the right in your Bible to John chapter 6. We find that the, the, the day after Jesus feeds the crowds, the day after that Jesus provides this miraculous meal for the crowds, they come looking for him again. He had again withdrawn. Jesus had again withdrawn. Uh, but the crowds follow, follow him and find him again. And when they find him, this is what Jesus says to them in verse 26 of John 6. Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you were looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. In other words, Jesus is, is saying to this, this crowd that had come looking for him that you just wanted your earthly needs met. You're following me just to be, simply because of what I can do for you here on, on earth. You just want to eat again. They had been satisfied by the, the meal that he had provided. But what happens after we eat a meal? What happens after we have breakfast or lunch or dinner? A few hours later, we get hungry again. But here Jesus is saying that he can give food that lasts for eternal life. He can give food that satisfies for all time. And what is that food? Well, Jesus said it is himself. Look down at, at verse 47 of John 6. Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
So Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Because my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Uh, This goes back to those verses that Juliet just read for us in, in Exodus 16. Jesus said that when God provided Israel manning in the wilderness, it was ultimately a sign pointing forward to him. It was pointing forward to the bread of life, Jesus himself, that God would provide from heaven to nourish his people. When Jesus fed the 5,000 just the day before, it was a sign that Jesus wasn't just there to meet their physical needs, but he was meeting their spiritual needs. He was calling them to trust and believe in him because he is the bread of life who could eternally satisfy He is the one who could give eternal life. The manna in the wilderness fed Israel for a time, but the people who ate of that manna still died. It did not cause them to live forever. The same would be true of those who ate the the two fish and the five loaves that day. They would hunger again, and they would one day also die. And none of them are here with us today. Jesus said, if you want eternal life, you must eat his flesh and, and drink of his blood. Now, Jesus did not mean for his words to be taken literally there. It is not required to actually eat his body, his physical body, and drink his physical blood. When we take the Lord's Supper, when we take communion, the bread and the wine, or the bread and the juice, they do not, they do not turn into the literal body and blood of Jesus. That is not what happens. As Jesus says in verse 47, to eat of his body and drink of his blood is to believe in him. Verse 47, it is to believe in him. It is to place your faith in him. Jesus' body was broken for sinners on the cross. He suffered and he died in the place of all who would repent and believe. And his blood was shed to atone for your sins. If you repent and you, you believe, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are covered by his blood because his body was offered as a, as a sacrifice for you. Just as the Israelites spread the blood of the Passover lamb over that door that day many thousands of years ago when they were being rescued from Egypt, they did that in faith that the angel of death would pass over them if they spread that blood of the Passover lamb over that door. So Christians are covered by the blood of Jesus when they place their faith in him. When God's judgment one day comes, when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, they will be covered by the blood of the lamb. Jesus is a compassionate Savior. He is a welcoming Savior, and he welcomes all those who come to him in repentance and faith. And friends, Jesus is the only one who eternally satisfies. He is the only bread that can give eternal life. Well, in response to Jesus' words in John 6, when we read the Jews started grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread of life. See that in John 6, 41, and in John And in verse 66, we read that many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. In other words, when when Jesus began teaching this, when he rebukes the crowd, many do not welcome Jesus or his words. They had not tasted the bread of life. They had not found eternal satisfaction. They were those bad soils that the seed of God's word had come to. And so they went away. They departed from following Jesus only to hunger again. Why? Jesus tells us why this happens in John 6, 65. It's because no one can come to me, no one can come to Jesus, unless it is granted by the Father. 
Friends, Jesus must give us eyes to see him for who he is. He must give us a desire to taste the bread of life. He must give us hearts to, to believe. He must give us the longing to have our spiritual needs met, not just our physical needs. But friends, even though this is true, he calls you to believe. One of the great mysteries of the Bible is that God is fully sovereign. God is in control of all things, even the salvation of men and women. But we are also fully responsible to respond to the message of the gospel. And the right response to the gospel, the right response to the words of life, the right response to the bread of life is to, to welcome it, to eat of it, to believe. It's to welcome Jesus in his words by repenting of your sins and placing your faith in him. That is the only way to find eternal life and is the only way to find eternal satisfaction. And Jesus is the bread of life. Let's pray. And Father, we come and, and Father, we know what it is to have physical needs. Father, we know what it is to, to hunger. And Father, we, we know what it is to, to want our needs here on earth satisfied. Father, we can understand that. But Father, we, we come marveling that, Lord, it seems as if you've given us these physical needs. Father, even the way that you have designed life on earth here to work is to point us to greater and deeper truths. Uh, that, Father, that what we need is not our, our material needs satisfied. Uh, we do not just need a, a, some bread to satisfy our growling stomachs. And, Father, we need Jesus himself to satisfy our deeper needs. We need our, our sins covered. And, Father, we need Jesus' blood to cover our sins. We need his body broken for us. So, Father, we thank you for providing the bread of, of life. We thank you for Jesus, the bread that came down from heaven. And Father, we pray that you would help us to trust in him. And Father, we pray that we would not grumble against him, that we would not let the, the circumstances of our life distract us from that which is more glorious, more precious, and more satisfying than anything else, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And Father, we pray that we would remember what he has done for us in the gospel, that we would uh, fully place our faith and our trust in him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh.